Welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman, health editor at the Mail on Sunday, and with me is the Mail on Sunday's deputy health editor, the brilliant Eve Simmons. Hello. Eve, I wanted to tell the, the listeners that I am uh, coming to them via the wonder of technology. It took us a good how long <laughs> to work out how to make all I this I think work it was 25 now. minutes in total, yes. I, I got pinged on Friday. I am in quarantine. I am in my bedroom calling uh, via a combination of Zoom and something else. You know, I've been vaccinated fully. I have taken multiple tests. I just had uh, a uh, PCR test back negative today. I couldn't be less likely to have COVID. And yet the government is requiring me to isolate until Thursday. Anyway, boring, (laughs) boring. Who isn't in this situation at the moment, it seems. Let's not talk about COVID today. Yes, I want to know what your favourite breakfast cereal was growing up. Oh, okay. I have to tell you, it was, well, it was a lot of them because we had the variety packs. (gasps) The variety packs. Yeah. My brother and I I would squabble endlessly over who got the Cocoa Pops. He usually won. I have to say, elder top brother. Top tier cereals, top tier cereals. It was, I was often left with the boring Rice Krispies, which, you know, who wanted them? Yeah, I never liked Rice Krispies. I don't think many people did. Unless you put lots of sugar on them or something, which, you know. I think I enjoyed Crunchy Nut as well. But again, Tom always, my brother always got that. Frosties, I probably shouldn't say that. I imagine you're talking about this because of Frosty Gate last week. Yes, the new National Food Strategy, which is a report written by Leon food entrepreneur Henry Dimbleby, says that we should have a food tax on sugary and salty food and he's hit out especially at sugary cereals such as Frosties and says that they're just pure sugar. It's not worth keeping them cheap because they're destroying the NHS. What do you think of that? I think what I I often think about these kind of conversations in which somebody has attempted to vilify foods that many people love. I think it's far too simplistic. I think that again we're focusing on specific foods instead of really zooming out and looking at the bigger picture yes i mean i know you've been critical of these kinds of reviews in the past often they're chaired or headed up by celebs we had prue leith on the show not long ago and there was jamie oliver uh, dimbleby's the latest one and i know you alongside a number of diet experts are skeptical of the overclassification, the overuse of the term junk food that they call, you know, well, I mean, the idea that is Frosty's junk food. Well, what's interesting is even in the report, it flips between these different terms. You've got junk food and then you've got processed food then you've got highly processed food then you've got high salt, sugar, fat foods. And it's like, what does anything mean? And this is the problem with research into junk food or processed food. No one can quite work out in studies what it means. And there's different definitions in different studies. And therefore, we don't quite know the direct effect of these foods on human health. There have been some really good studies looking at highly ultra processed food, which are like those kind of congealed meats that you see that are so far removed from actual meat and have lots of nitrates added. Um, What about Frosties? (laughs) 
Are they highly okay. ultra processed or not? Frosties, well, I guess they are processed in the same way that you know, bread that you might buy from the supermarket is is processed. But when you look at the individual nutrition profile of these cereals, actually, for, uh, you know, well, let's say children, because I guess most people that eat these cereals are, are children, they're kind of sugary-ish cereals. I'm making a, a massive generalisation there. Um, but, you know, you've got carbohydrate, you've got fibre, you've got calcium from, from the milk, presumably, if you have milk with your cereal. And actually, that's a, a relatively balanced breakfast. And for the, the small amount of sugar that you get with that, if you don't have lots of sugar elsewhere in the day, it's not the most terrible thing. And really, when we're talking about the health harms that are associated with these foods, we're talking about people who only eat very highly processed foods all the time for, for most of their diet. And there is a reason why somebody would eat that kind of diet. And the reasons are very complicated and are certainly not going to be solved by just telling people don't eat these foods. Sometimes when I'm getting my newspaper, there are kids that come. I, I, when I'm commuting, it's it's around 7.30 in the morning. And there are a couple of kids who always come and buy about three or four packets of crisps and start eating them straight away. And I worry that that's their only breakfast. I'd say for them, maybe a bowl of Frosties might be quite good if, if they were able to get that. Well, absolutely. I think the latest figure shows something like at least one million children in the UK go without breakfast, don't have it. And often that's because that there simply isn't anything for them to have or there's no time in the family to organise them to sit down at the table and have the breakfast. And so they go off to school with an empty stomach. And we know that children, really, their, their capacity to learn is massively reduced if they don't have breakfast. Well, I think the whole Marcus Rashford situation last summer showed really graphically how many kids are going without, without proper food at all. That is a, a health crisis that Henry Dimbleby should be tackling with all his Leon millions. I, I, you know, I don't know. As an aside, did you have actual Frosties or did you have the generic? Oh, it was always a supermarket own, I'm afraid. Mm. Although I, I, despite the many requests of myself and my brother, my parents were dug the hills in. They wouldn't do anything but supermarket own brand, unfortunately. I think before we go any further, you've got Henry Dimbleby on the line. You're going to give him a grilling. Yes, let's see what he has to say from himself. Um, on the line now is Henry Dimbleby, who is the co-founder of Leon Restaurants and the author of the National Food Strategy. Henry, one thing that struck me about the report is that you came down quite hard on what you call processed foods. And these are including sugary cereals, in particular Frosties, which you, you've said is pure sugar. I'm guessing that breakfast time in the Dimbleby household doesn't involve these kind of sugary cereals that I suppose children are, are very passionate about. I'm not perfect by any means, but I have to say sugary cereals are, are pretty much verboten in our house. It doesn't mean that our children don't descend upon them in other people's houses. I mean, the, the reason that I came down hard on this kind of food was not because it gives me any particular pleasure, but because if you look at the data, it's just going to overwhelm the NHS. You know, we saw in COVID that you were twice as likely to die of COVID if you were severely obese. They're now projecting that diabetes, type 2 diabetes alone, is going to be cost the NHS 1.5 times what all cancers cost the NHS by 2035. 
So, you know, we just we have to do something about it. So it wasn't just the pleasure of denying people their sugary cereals that made me do it. It's that I became convinced through doing the work that something needed to be done. So is it sugary cereals, to be clear, that's going to overwhelm the NHS? Is, is that the, the real problem here? So it's not just about sugary cereals. What's interesting is that the way that the, the solution most people think uh, we should use to tackle the problem of obesity and diet-related illness is a bit of education, a bit of exercise, and a bit of willpower. And what we show in the report is that's that's just scientifically wrong. Exercise is wonderful for all sorts of things, but not particularly for helping you lose weight. And people know what they should be eating, but they struggle. In particular, people with certain genes struggle. And this is because you have what we call a junk food cycle, which is an interaction between foods predominantly that are high, highly calorie dense and low in insoluble fiber. And those foods we find absolutely delicious. We seek them out. We eat them more of them because they fill us up less quickly. They have low satiety. And what you've seen over time is you've just seen this vicious circle between we've eaten more, companies have invested more in those foods, marketing and sales, we've eaten more, um, and it's got out of control. And so actually we target all foods that are highly, well, HFSS is the jargon, high in fat and sugar and salt. But it's basically foods that are, are very calorie dense and high, particularly ones that are high in both fat and sugar and are low in uh, insoluble fiber. And what we argue is you can't educate your way out of that. You need to break that commercial incentive between the companies who, who are stuck in, stuck in the cycle as well, right? Because if they don't make them, their competitors will. And when you talk to the CEOs of the companies that make all those breakfast cereals, they know the, they know the problem that they're in. And they struggle to get out of it. And I had people kind of behind the scenes saying, Henry, we're not going to be able to do this on our own. We need state intervention. We saw with the soft drinks levy, I know you've mentioned this in your report, that there was a success in pressuring manufacturers to start reformulating. And that's that's what you want to extend, isn't it? You want to really level the playing field in a way and make sure all manufacturers are making ready-made foods a bit healthier. Is that is that right? Exactly. So you're not gonna we're not gonna reformulate as the jargon goes our way out of this completely. We do need to try and shift our diets. So we're eating more fruit and veg, more insoluble fibre, ideally cooking from scratch. But fifty percent of the food that we eat is processed and that is much, much too high in sugar and salt. And the idea is that by putting the tax on wholesale sale of those substances of sugar and salt you incent the the companies to make those foods slightly better for us. And I say slightly better. Actually, the modelling that we did with the Institute for Fiscal Studies on this suggested that you might be able to reduce total calories per person per day by between 15 and 35. And that might not sound like a lot, but 25 calories per day per person on average is the amount that we need to stop putting on weight as a society. So it could have quite a huge impact. The studies do show that the majority of people who eat these kinds of foods or have diets high in these kinds of foods are the least affluent in society. Do you think that taxing these foods then, is it, is it not just another kind of poor tax? No, not at all. And you're absolutely right. You know, one of the terrible things about 
diet-related illness is how that focuses particularly on the least affluent. I mean, it goes across all segments of society, but it's particularly bad at the least affluent end. And so what you're trying to do is create reformulation, not punish the poor. And actually, what, to balance that out a little bit is we propose that you take about a billion pounds from that tax and use that to support the diets of people who are really struggling. So by expanding Healthy Start, which gives vouchers for fresh veg and fruit, by expanding free school meals availability, by expanding the food, the holiday food and activity programs. So you're trying at the one end to try and make the worst stuff slightly better for you, and at the other end trying to support diets of people who are really struggling. Henry, I think it sounds like a great idea, especially being able to give away free food, so repurposing that money made by the taxes uh, into giving out foods. I always remember uh, I was invited to a dinner thing and I sat next to a guy who was head of programming for, um, I think it was one of the big chains that did casual dining a harvester or something like that. Yeah. And over the years, they tried many, many initiatives, especially on children's menus to include vegetables and, you know, healthier options. And he said that every time these things had bombed because people wanted the familiar thing, they wanted the... they wanted the nice thing they wanted the chips and the the beans and the you know bits and bobs that they were used to um, as you would who's to say that that initiative you know giving out fruit and veg who's to say that would work well so that's really interesting because there's evidence on it and actually that is particularly the case if you have not much to scrape together and you're feeding your kids there's a real risk in trying to get them to eat something that you that they won't eat because unlike someone like me, frankly, who if the, if the kids, I can get them to try and try something, and if they don't eat it, it's not a problem, I can give them something else. If you're really struggling to get by, you can't risk your children not eating the vegetable meal you give them. You default to things that you know they'll want, and there's, there's data on that to show that's true, and also we've been having dialogues with citizens, particularly those who are on benefits, who are struggling across the country, and that's something that's come through loud and clear. When you give people the healthy start vegetables they say yeah you know, i had a mother the other day saying to me you know it just enabled me to put a fruit bowl on the table and not feel guilty about it and so the kids actually the evidence is if you give people fruit and veg because you're taking the risk away actually they eat more and they get significantly more into their diets so what instead of frosties what are you telling people to do right now so i mean i think there are there are obviously there are now lots of much better cereals that have i would look particularly for cereals that are high in fiber and low in sugar but also you know if you train yourself i know it sounds you know dumb but making porridge is pretty quick it's one one cup of oats one cup of milk one cup of water and you boil it up and you can make porridge you know even making a egg with toast you know just the kind of stuff we used to have none of those things necessarily take great skill a bowl of yogurt, but a plain yogurt with a you know with a little bit of uh, oats and some you know fruit on top. Fruit's Do expensive, you, but so should we all just go back to basics and um, get our own allotments and start only eating things that come out of the ground? Well, if I got only ate things that came out of the ground, I would starve very quickly because I kill every single vegetable that I've ever tried to grow. So I wouldn't recommend doing Same that. Here. I do <laughs> think that if you have the um, if you have the skills, you know, as a as a starting point, 
because there is so much in pro- processed food that isn't great for you, it is a good thing to move away from, you know, to move towards cooking a bit more for ourselves. But a lot of people don't have kitchens, they don't have freezers, they don't have fridges. So there's a long-term transition there. I would just be really careful individually about processed foods in particular that are particularly high in sugar, salt, fat. You know, if, if you look... We eat five times as many crisps as we did in the 70s. We eat huge amounts of biscuits, cakes, crisps, sugary snacks, ice cream. It's like much, much, much more than we did 20 years ago. My problem with this is the average person, every maybe once a week, twice a week, might have a packet of crisps with their sandwich, you know, and, and they don't have health problems. They're not obese. I'm talking thinking about most people in our office who would have a sandwich and a packet of crisps at lunch. Is the packet of crisps terrible? Are they going to become morbidly obese and cost the NHS a fortune because of their packet of ready-salted? No, but you have to do, you have to distinguish between... So if you say there are people who are susceptible to this, number one, and the foods that are causing this are becoming more and more prevalent, can Gary Lineker eat a pack of crisps and be fine? Of course he can. Look at him. The man's a, a, an Adonis aged 75 or whatever he is. Are eating way too many crisps, snacks, cakes, stuff, you know, likely to overwhelm the NHS destroy lives yes they are you know the two things can be true at once it's not it's not mm. complicated so you're talking about on a population level on a, yeah there's a, a there's a there's a, a, a significantly number of people over the age of 45 half the population has some kind of diet related condition so your office may be full of the most wonderfully fit happy people who have no issue with food but that isn't even the majority experience of people over a certain uh, certain age, and and what we argue is you can't you're not going to be able to educate your way out of it. That's why you need to make a, an intervention. Henry, uh, you know I think it makes it seems like a great place to start all these things. But do you think that this food strategy will be enough to do what you want it to do? To do what we all want it to do which is, you know, avoid these, this spiralling problem with diabetes and ill health in midlife. And do you think it will be enough? Or is there more that needs to be done? Yes and no. So the reason that we have the food system today, broadly speaking, is that after the war we were all going to starve. And we saw the population was going to increase to 9 billion from 1.5 billion bit over than it was then. And we thought, how on earth are we going to feed all these people? And we developed a form of farming that massively increase productivity and reduce price of refined oils, carbohydrates and sugar. And that was a staggering success. It was absolute triumph. Billions of people around the world live now because that happened. A third of us rely on nitrogen fertilizer for our food. But we now realize that it's destroying the environment and making a lot of us sick. And once we've realised that, if we're serious about understanding that, what I've set out in the plan are the first steps required to transition the system to something better, but they won't be enough. So there will need to be more. You know, it's not going to be something that's going to be done in three, five years. It'll take another 40 years. I strongly believe we'll do it. I think cultural change is possible. I think people are too pessimistic about how big changes are possible. 
And actually, if you look back at our cultural history, you see time and again things that people thought weren't possible have changed. But I think what I've set out is the need to create a different set of goals for the system and the steps, the immediate actions that are required to begin the transition to that new way of operating. Well, I thought what you said made quite good sense, to be honest with you, Eve. It was very sensible. I just worry that this focus to the masses on processed food is just so complicated and besides the point. And the effect is that people just end up thinking some foods are good and some foods are bad, which isn't true. My concern is that I feel a slight sense of deja vu with all of this. Mm. And unless it is followed up with a genuine effort from government to make policy changes like they did with the sugary drinks levy. If it's not backed up with policy, if, if there isn't government action after this report to really do something about these things, you know, in the way that they did with the sugary drinks levy, uh, that that it's it's all just going to be well-meaning and good suggestions. You know, so it's it, there's got to be action. I completely agree. And I was also interested that in the report, there was a lot of quite detailed nutritional information um, about why all of these foods are so bad for us. So I'm interested to find out from a diet expert whether that is the case. On the line now is Dwayne Meller, who is a dietitian and lead for nutrition and evidence-based medicine at Aston Medical School in Birmingham. Dwayne, is there anything wrong with having a bowl of Frosties for breakfast? Well, it's probably not the ideal breakfast. You know, it's not perfect. It's not got fruit and vegetables there. It's not, as they have on the packets, balanced with other sources of uh, foods in there. But if that's what you've got and that's what you eat and it gets you off to a better start from the day of not having breakfast, it could be better than nothing. So it is better than nothing to have a bowl of Frosties? And sort of if you look at the research on breakfast, it's, it's, it is a bit uh, complicated because, you know, there's a lot of research saying kids having breakfast is, is a good thing, but it's possibly more the discipline, the, the routine of having breakfast, which is better. And if that's the case, the actual substance of the breakfast isn't the key thing. And even sort of things like frost, they've been reformulated, they're lower in sugar than they used to be. They're also fortified with another number of vitamin minerals. So it probably wouldn't be the first, second, third or fourth thing I'd recommend for breakfast but it's not as bad as probably having nothing at all. Dwayne, I'm sure you're aware of some of the recommendations that Henry Dimbleby has made in his National Food Strategy Plan that came out last week. Do you think that um, his suggestions that highly processed food is hijacking our appetite and that this is the main cause of lots of our diet-related disease stands up? Do you think that's true? I think, first of all, we need to be careful how we describe highly processed foods. If we use a NOVA classification, which is the most common one, there's a few things that need probably unpicking and we need to have a more objective, sort of substantiated classification that fits the British food supply. You know, this was, this was mainly developed in Brazil. There's, most of it is common, but there's issues and you can have things like uh, jar sauce uh, for pasta, which could be quite variable. It's classed as highly processed foods. It could be a way of getting people to eat more vegetables because you put vegetables into it rather than it just being processed stuff. So that's the first thing. As for hijacking our diet, yeah, we know from studies of both humans and animals that were done in the US by Adam Dronowski's group that there's a sweet spot of when you put sugar and fat together that it sort of 
disinhibits our appetite and we just tend to eat more. Um, yeah, this is sort of the, the ice donut effect that they're just so Moorish. Whether it's a deliberate thing by food companies or they're just finding something that humans like, that's a different debate. And it's probably the way the whole food system's set up that encourages food companies to sell us food that we like and it's tasty rather than find a harder way of encouraging us to eat foods that are actually better for us and better for the planet, you know, because that's going against sort of the way our food, food economy is set up at the moment. So do you think that it's right that the reason why we have so much diet-related disease and we have this, this obesity problem that's getting worse and worse is mainly because of our obsession with these products that are in many vending machines in offices and you know the fact that we all like to go out and get our packet of crisps in the afternoon etc we have a food environment that actually supports us to gain eat more food than we need and it it doesn't allow us to regulate our appetite in a sensible controlled managed way it's far easier to go and get food that we don't necessarily need to satisfy our appetite or meet our nutritional needs just because it's there and it's tasty so it's an, a food environment issue, I'd say, rather than just you know, the individual foods themselves. We need to look at changing the foods that are available and, and sort of finding ways of making healthy foods more attractive. And so we can actually enjoy the flavors and taste of those rather than going for these easy options that are so readily available and all around us. Dwayne, there's been a lot of research into the group of people who are most affected by this environment. And it seems to me from this kind of small amount of research that I've done that the people who are most affected are the least affluent and the people who have the least amount of resources and time, etc., in order to cook healthy meals from scratch. Henry Dimbleby is suggesting a tax on sugary foods, which are ostensibly bought by this group of people do you think that that's going to help those people to buy less of those products and cook more from scratch if we use a model of the sugar and sweetened beverage levy or the sugar tax for short that seems to have helped reformulated and push the responsibility on the producer to change what's put in front of the consumer so the consumer's options are not negatively affected if it's done in a we could argue whether that's debate that was deliberate and worked by design or or default. That's a different issue. If we're looking at more widespread, changing the salt and the fat and sugar in foods as a reformulation mechanism, that needs to be done carefully so you don't have unintended consequences. Because the risk is if you're changing it to food and you have a limited income and you know your children will eat these foods you may sort of take the hit of paying more for them knowing they'll be eaten rather than risk spending less on foods you know may go to waste. So I think it's complicated. It's not an easy thing to fix. We need to fix poverty. That's the underlying issue. I'm sure that's been mentioned as well. But the, you know, how you do that is a lot more complicated than, than sort of putting food levies in and sort of taxing foods. We have mechanisms through VAT where we could do this already, particularly following leaving Europe. We have a lot more freedom with VAT and we could actually subsidize some of the healthier food options, but we still need to make them attractive, easy to prepare, easier to store at home and easy to, to tidy up afterwards. So it becomes the obvious, simplest, best tasting option for people. And currently that system is not, not in place because the less healthy foods are the the cheapest overall to manage. You don't need to store them. They're easy to prepare. You know you'll have, they'll be eaten. 
and we need to change sort of attitude. And that's not going to be easy. And you can't do that from a different position in society, talking down to people to do that, saying we do. You need to actually work with communities to find out what recipes would be eaten, what role models, what leaders are actually in communities that can help influence change rather than trying to trickle something down from the top. I mean, possibly these taxation mechanisms may help, but we need to support communities to grow their own food, food culture and their own food identity so they can feel that they control and own these issues rather than feel that you know, these taxes being put on almost as punishment from above. It mm. needs to be done with people, not at people. From what I understand, the sugar tax, although it's been very successful in reducing the amount of sugar um, in soft drinks, we don't know yet about its effect on overall obesity in children and in adults. Is that right? That's right. And it's not like to have a massive effect because, you know, it might be substituting calories from elsewhere. You know, there's a limited quality data, but there is some data saying that, that sweetening in beverages will sort of true sort of stimulate appetite and there is some compensation of energy elsewhere although it's not to the same level as the, the amount in the sugary drinks it's a very subtle effect what we do know is purchasing habits are changing that's the best we're going to get and by looking at sort of obesity we need to look at a whole raft of things across society both in our food system but also in things like active transport and how we move around and how it affects our stationary time you know these are one small little pebble in a massive dry stone wall and we need to tinker with as many of these little things as possible to try and make our environment better for people to live in and mm. promote health as part of the way people are enjoying the spaces they're living in. And that's a, that is a complicated, hard thing to do. Are there any kind of specific initiatives that you know of that are, are really great at doing this? Yeah, some, some people use sort of the, and again, this is Childhood Obesity, the example in Amsterdam where they actually worked with communities who are, as you say, sort of, the, sort of the, the, those of the less income, particularly those from different minority groups, and they work with them to find solutions that work for them. And it's very much a grassroots thing done through ideally people with connections in those communities to actually find ways of encouraging people to be confident and wanting to be moving around their, their localities to find the foods that they find easy to prepare. And some of these things where people are starting to share food as well. So you're lowering the risk of maybe preparing something new that might be a healthier recipe. So you're sharing the food and have these community food initiatives which are are really starting to show some promise. That's really interesting. The the one suggestion uh, that that Henry Dimbleby has kind of uh, put across is that certain types of highly processed food may be in some way sort of addicted or, or certainly behave like an addiction when you eat lots of them. Is there is there any truth to that? When you're talking about addiction, it's a complicated one because if you're talking about addiction in terms of drugs, they do hit certain particular receptors in the brain. And that's a slightly different thing to what you're talking about food. If you're looking at these foods which are high in fat and sugar and salt to some extent, they hit the pleasure spots. You know, they're nice and we learn that these give us a reward in terms of being pleasurable. So whether it's something, an enjoyable thing that we then go back to then rather than a true addiction is debatable. But some people, without doubt, find it hard to control their intake of these foods and they do feel dependent on them, whether you actually call that a true addiction or not is, is possibly in some ways a scientific debate, 
the fact is we do know there are a number of people that have difficulty controlling their intakes of high energy foods these you know, the ultra processed foods we've already mentioned is a bit of a, a tricky one to define but they are energy dense they tend to be high in fat and sugar possibly with salt but low in other nutrients mm. and the reason we consume them is because they taste good we need to find ways of making the foods that are possibly based on more vegetables and fruits and things like the seeds and the nuts and the pulses more attractive that could be marketing but it's also finding ways of presenting them in a simple way to people so they can try them without sort of spending hours in a kitchen with equipment they may not have using lots of ingredients that are going to be quite expensive we need to shake up our food system so it's easier to be healthy currently mm. it's not designed to do that. it's designed to produce large amounts of food going through sort of the the industrialization process we've had since the 1940s and following on from sort of rationing in the post-war era. Well, Dwayne, listen, thank you so much for spending the time. No problem. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from The Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones' Diary, The Podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. I have to say, Eve, that I think that Dimbleby's report is one that the government should listen to, despite your scepticism. I must say, I think I'm going to backpedal a bit because I, I actually agree. And I didn't expect to think that he was, you know, really caring and actually understood fully these complicated issues. But I actually found that speaking to him kind of proved me wrong. And, and he clearly does. The problem is going to be that a lot of these issues need proper funding and support for an infrastructure. And I just have very little faith that that's going to happen because it's we've seen it happen before that these things are, are tabled and, and they're never supported by ministers. I know. I mean, that's what, when we spoke with Prue Leith a few weeks back, that was, you know, she's been calling for some of these things for decades. And I think the big problem is in investment that, you know, governments change and people think about the next four years. And of course, all of these uh, issues take as Henry explained, many, many years to, to work mm. through. You know, I mean, I was, I was very in, interested by his suggestions about how to change people's tastes mm. and get kids more accustomed to unusual foods and that it took huge commitment to do that you know over years yeah and i've seen actually there's been various community projects done in inner cities like london um where they've got community groups together and created shared kitchens um various charities have done this and um that's been really successful because cooking huge portions of things amongst a group of people means that families don't have to worry about throwing things away and there's another choice of meal etc but of course all those things aren't particularly sexy or I mean you might think they're not very interesting and so inevitably the issues that are um, you know on the front pages or that people talk about the most are it gets boiled down to this is a debate about frosties and sugary cereals when you know the attention shouldn't really be on that because the average person takes away from that oh well sugary cereals are bad and that's that's not the message i think also as we've seen with other multifaceted problems because it's no one government brief it tends to slip through cracks i guess mm. 
what tends to happen, I've seen in terms of, well, financially anyway, is a chunk of money will be ring-fenced, but it will be ring-fenced for a very broad description. So it will be something like community projects or local government social care. And then the local government can use that however they wish. So they'll say, the government will say that they are ring-fencing money for these kinds of things. But actually, when it comes down to it, it's up to the local council to decide whether they're going to use it for a specific food-related intervention. Yeah. And you see that, you, uh, I imagine you're seeing that with the ink disorders, yeah, mental so, health money. Yeah, so the government will ring-fence money for acute mental health problems or services and say that some of that should be used for eating disorders. But of course, if a local NHS trust says that the priority isn't eating disorders and it's psychosis or depression or something else oh, it's um, up to local trust they can just decide yeah, yeah. And, and eating mm. disorders gets kind of pushed aside interesting well i hope that henry dibbleby sticks at it it sounds like he's getting somewhere especially if he's convinced you yes who would have thought <laughs> that's all we've got time for you can get all the latest health news in this weekend's the mail on sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts videos opinion pieces and more if you have a question or a suggestion for us on medical minefield tweet us using the hashtag medical minefield We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then. Goodbye.